Welcome to Envision, fostering a community for change. Your co-hosts are Ronnie Langer-Kroger and Thomas Rosenberg. In today's program, you'll meet fascinating people who are implementing innovative ideas to make a difference both locally and globally. Now, here is your host. Hello, everyone. I'm your co-host, Thomas Rosenberg, and welcome to Envision. You may have heard about fair trade products, and perhaps you've heard or seen a label describing direct trade. What's the difference, you might ask? Fair trade products have an international certification that ensures a certain premium over world market prices. These products often go through middlemen. So even though the community or organization receives a higher price for products than they would through standard market transactions, most of the premium stays with the middlemen. Direct trade eliminates these middlemen, works directly with the community in question to pay a living wage for these products, and requires the community to meet certain minimum quality and social responsibility levels. In direct trade agreement, there is also a focus on building local community capacity, knowledge, and inclusion. To facilitate this and provide economic stability, sourcing contracts may be multi-year. So why is this important? Products like coffee, chocolate, and some nuts are tropical rainforest understory crops. Clearing rainforest for more intensive agriculture and other extractive industries puts significant pressure on these areas that are known as the lungs of the world. These forests sequester carbon, provide oxygen, are highly biodiverse, and are home to threatened indigenous cultures. So how do tropical rainforests, commodity crops, and the rural poor all fit together? To help me answer that question and profile a highly innovative initiative in Ecuador are my guests, Dr. Amy Rogers, Senior Fellow at the Pinchot Institute for Conservation, and Jan-Marcel Schubert, Conservation Cacao Leader at Original Beans. Amy is an experienced conservation scientist and practitioner focused on innovative long-term interdisciplinary solutions to complex environmental challenges. With over 20 years of experience in the rainforests of Latin America, her work is grounded in a deep firsthand understanding of both ecology and deforestation dynamics, from drivers to impacts. Jan is conservation cacao leader with the conservation and chocolate company Original Beans. He has an ex- a background in food technology with over 12 years experience in the chocolate and cacao world, including founding his own artisanal chocolate company prior to joining Original Beans. So Jan and Amy, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Great to be here. (laughs) Wonderful. So Amy, I'd like to start with you. In my intro, I mentioned some of the reasons why we need to be concerned about rainforest loss. Could you expand on why we need to be concerned and how traditional conservation projects usually approach the issue of rainforest loss? Sure. Well, the gravity of the current race to reverse climate change is pretty apparent, I think, and tropical forests sequester a disproportionate amount of atmospheric carbon. I think that not only are people really starting to connect the dots in terms of how we absolutely cannot afford to lose more tropical forests at this point, but that there's also a newer, rapidly growing recognition of the need for massive-scale reforestation in the tropics. So that's really encouraging and will be exciting if it comes to pass. Um, In terms of how conservation has historically approached the problem of rainforest loss, it really depends on which deforestation driver you're talking about. Our work zeroed in on what has been called the poverty conservation dilemma, which is basically the widespread pattern 
of the poorest sector of each nation in the tropics colonizing the frontiers of vast remaining tracts of rainforest due to the opportunities that those areas represent. Generally speaking, these people are poor farmers that claim small plots of land and log opportunistically in order to make ends meet. Their impact is minuscule in comparison to industrial deforestation-based interests, but I believe that they're a uniquely critical piece of the puzzle. After 20 years of working in rainforests, my perception is that they're essentially the gatekeepers. If frustrated after years of being taken advantage of by all of the different middlemen, they basically will sell for a song to the big bad deforesters who then leapfrog in on whatever access ways and basic infrastructure the poor farmers have created. At that point, the real problem begins. If, on the other hand, they're able to make a livable wage and provide basics like health and education for their kids, I personally think that these people could represent a formidable and already built-in system of forest stewards. They're incredibly resourceful, hardworking, fast to protect what's theirs, and adept at navigating one of the most challenging settings on Earth. I, I think of them as the MacGyvers of the jungle. If the right incentives were in place, we would be hard-pressed to find people more capable of enforcing forest protection. Hmm. Okay. Tell me more. Like, what, what about them do you think makes them such, such MacGyvers? Is, is there... <laughs> I, I, I kind of... I've spent quite a bit of time with these people in different countries, and... Um, I kind of think that they must have a, a mentality and a general approach to life, something akin to that of the homesteaders when, you know, when the United States was, was first getting its footing. They're just incredibly resilient and uh, quick on their feet. And in terms of, I, I hesitated last night, I was thinking about how to prepare for this interview, and I thought, I wonder, do I dare say that I think they really understand the concept of loyalty? But I do. <laughs> um, I, and I think that that says a lot. So if there's a reason for them to protect a plot of land because it really behooves them in terms of their future, I, I don't think that there's anybody that could do a better job of that. Mm, mm-hmm. So why... Um why cacao in this particular instance here? Mm-hmm. You know, with, why at least with this project, why, why, ca- maca- why cacao? So, because cacao is a rainforest tree, its growing regions coincide perfectly with all of the planet's remaining rainforest. And uh, today, we have five to six million cacao farmers the vast majority of which are poor, that are living in this scenario with the rainforest as their backyard. So it's, very, it's a very strategic crop in terms of trying to help to, to lift poor farmers up out of their current reality and conserve rainforest in the process. Mm-hmm. And, and this, you, you have a strong sense that this is going to alleviate some of the, the access, perhaps, because you were talking about these these folks as as gatekeepers that this would actually reduce the opportunity for industrial scale uh, yeah I really do believe to come that. In. I've seen uh, yes I've seen countless instances of 
it, it, these are the people that show up first. The rural poor uh, are the ones that do basically all of the hard work in creating any sort of rudimentary access ways into the jungle. And it, it is quite hard work. Um, and it's, it almost seems intentional in a way that the, the larger corporations, the logging corporations and other deforestation-based interests, African palm and whatnot, um, they, they seem to take advantage of that after the fact in order, it, it makes for easier access into these frontier areas of remaining wilderness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, I think there's a real dynamic there. And, um, most of the people that have spent time working in the tropics recognize that. So you didn't mention this specifically, but you, you've referred to this overarching concept as forest for a living. So if you, mm-hmm. could you describe that a little bit more and, and, uh, you know, how, how bringing Absolutely. in that, yeah, how bringing in that living wage really resonates with the people on the ground. Yeah. Absolutely, Thomas. Um, I think that the, so the short answer to this question is that For Us for a Living attempts to put the right incentives in place by creating a model where standing rainforest actually becomes the reason that poor farmers are finally able to become self-empowered entrepreneurs rather than the, the source of isolation that in effect is causing all of their problems. So basically, it's a new spin on conservation incentives and deforestation alternatives that incorporates two specific pieces of the puzzle that I believe have game-changing potential. The first is that rather than cash incentives, the most pressing livelihood improvements that are identified by the farmers are directly facilitated. This is really important because more often than not, these are people that quite simply do not have the modern-day skills required in order to translate money into the lasting changes that need to happen to create equitable livelihoods. And, and the second part of that is that livelihood improvements beneath this model are explicitly tied to conservation commitments in order to mitigate the potential for perverse incentives. Uh, what I mean by that is that components are built into each step of the livelihood improvements that could essentially be removed if logging resumes. This is a, <clears throat> this is a bit of a touchy subject, but ample experience in, in conservation has shown that people often engage in double dipping if given the opportunity. In other words, they're still logging despite their new and improved sustainable sources of income unless it's specifically prohibited. Mm-hmm. And, and so is, is there, how, how often do you, are you able to, I guess, monitor that so that there's, there isn't that, what would be considered destructive logging? Well, that's, that is another subject in and of itself. The way that the Forest for a Living Project has set this up, it, we really did try to lean heavily on a participatory design with the communities involved. And they were the ones who came up with creating a basically a vigilance committee from the community to make sure that none of the areas that were enrolled in the project were experiencing any source of logging. 
So that's kind of line one of defense, and it seems to be working very well. People, I think that the key there is that um, people have been very, the, the difference that this has made in terms of the amount of income that they having in they have coming in and their their perceived potential for their own future, a self-sustaining future, is something that they're willing to defend. So they're not only concerned about making sure that everyone in the community maintains their word, but they were also very concerned about the potential for for people from outside the community attempting to log any of those areas. So that was set up. And then there's also um, there's some degree of government enforcement in terms of logging in, in this reserve. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of waxes and wanes depending on the on the time according to the current government administration's priorities. But um, I think we've really relied heavily on the honor system, the combination of those two factors. Super. That's, that is a really helpful uh, given uh, t- uh, context. So, Jan, I'd love to bring you in. And could you tell us a little bit about your background, Original Beans, and what you do for Original Beans? Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. And yes, for sure. So um, I'm conservation cacao leader at Original Beans. That means that I'm in charge of our project development at finally at, for the cacao purchase. Therefore, I'm based in, in Ecuador and working most uh, uh, the biggest part of the year in, in South America. I started very young with an own just for fun <laughs> chocolate company back in 2006 when I still was studying at high school and this uh, brought me also to the some chocolate fairs and events and this is where I met the founder of Original Beans Philip Kaufman and he gave me some very good contacts to South America so I was able after high school to go for volunteering and for yeah like internships to South America where I stayed uh, 18 months and learned a lot about yeah cacao chocolate and also some very good contacts to the NGO world so to conservation work and after that I studied food technology and started to work as a volunteer as Original Beans, taking care of our first projects in Peru and Ecuador and step by step this turned out into an full employment three years ago. So Original Beans is based in, in the Netherlands and it's a chocolate and conservation company. The mission of the company is focused on forest protection in areas of high biodiversity and promoting varieties of fine flavor cacao growing there and then making chocolate out of it so we can really with with the purchase of our cacao enable small farmer groups to grow very sustainable high-end uh, cacao in different areas around the world um, yeah that's that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Super. So, could you, uh, since you have experience in the in in the cacao market, could you explain, give us a brief overview of how cacao is priced globally and and what the market structure looks like? Um, yes, for sure. So, the world market, pro- so cacao is is as all the other products normally. 
um, depending on the world market price. And this world market price is actually about 2,400 US dollars per ton. And um, for what you know as fair trade label cacao, you have to pay $200 more on this price. But this price is not, uh, is not a fixed price. It's very, very flexible. So if you look to last year, the price dropped to 2,000 US dollars. When you look a little bit back to 2015, it was 3,500 US dollars. So last year or even this year, any fair trade organic cacao uh, will be cheaper than non-fair trade cacao just three years ago. So that's, that's a big problem. That's absolutely no fair not fair and it does not provide a good income to to small farmers because most of the cacao growers in the world are really uh, small farmers so we are talking from less than one hectare per family and that is why fine flavor cacao is so important and the work we are doing because for really good cacao you have to pay about four thousand to eight thousand us dollar per tons and then it can provide a good income to communities, to small farmers, if the price is fixed on long-term contracts and if you buy direct trade, you can assure that money really gets to the, to the producer, to the farmer. Super. So how long does it take for cacao trees to mature and what's inqui- required to ensure that the, the harvest provides a sufficient uh, amount of good quality fruit? That depends on very much on the region. So um, normally it was always about three years, but with new grafting technologies, you can get it in very uh, fertile areas in one year. So it's very fast growing and it gives the first harvest very, very fast. Um, to assure a good quality you need to assure the access to water, to the nutrition, so uh, good fertilizations. And the most important thing is good agricultural practice. So what you need is capacity building for small farmers because that is what is in rural areas really missing, the training courses, the knowledge of, of farmers. And then at the end, a good quality of the cacao depends on, on the genetics uh, of your cacao variety. So that's my job about to search out for regions where you, you really can find very special native cacao varieties. Excellent. So how does, is there a, a correlation between the, the time, just the, the time lag, that year, three years for the cacao maturation and how these communities respond to economic and cultural pressures? Yes, I think so, because it's very fast, so you have an immediate uh, result, so it can be a very good motivation for the project's members to change to more sustainable practice and income solution. So if you can assure a market access for the cacao, then the people spend more time to care for the cacao, even if it's not producing yet. So they have less time for, let's say, traditional lodging work. And uh, cacao is not only 
a great income solution because it's so fast. It's also because the harvest period is very, very long. So it depends on the region and the variety. But you normally have four to ten month harvest period um, per year in the cacao. So it's not a crop as others as that give just once a year an income to the farmers. It's in best case all over the year. Super, super. Well, that, that's really helpful, Jan. We have to take a short break and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your community on a journey to build consensus or define a vision for the future? Do you want your organization and people to flourish? Are you feeling burnt out or seeking guidance to leave old patterns of thinking and being behind? Thomas Rosenberg has international experience in change leadership, consensus building, and organizational transformation. He guides leaders and change makers, their organizations and communities on their journeys of transformation. For more information and to contact him, visit Regenerate.coach. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Envision. To find out more about the program or to leave comments and questions, please visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Envision Regenerative Communities. Now back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with Dr. Amy Rogers, Senior Fellow at the Pinchot Institute for Conservation, and Jan Marcel Schubert, Conservation Cacao Leader for Original Beans. We were talking about the innovations of the Mono Bravo Initiative and the multi-pronged efforts to get this off the ground from both Amy and the Original Beans team. So, Amy, could you tell us how you choose projects to work on and why did you choose this project in, in Mono Bravo Machachinde? What about it appealed to you? Mm-hmm. Sure. So um, a lot of the reason that I chose this particular area to work in was based on uh, what I perceive to be its potential for long-term conservation. And what I mean by that is that uh, I, I did a reconnaissance trip in Ecuador in 2002, I believe, 
and I looked at, I think, 10 different potential sites on the coastal, in the coastal forests of Ecuador, most of which are in the, what's called the Choco Biogeographical Region, which is one of the planet's hotspots, biodiversity hotspots. And the portion of that that extends into Ecuador is extremely fragmented and basically in danger of disappearing forever. So I chose my Chichindul Ecological Reserve specifically because it was the only site that I visited that seemed to have potential for reconnection to the much more expansive forests that are, that are to the north by the Colombian border. And uh, in terms of within my Chichindul Reserve, we selected Mono Bravo community for this pilot a, because it fits a set of criteria, criteria that would allow for a robust test of the model, and B, because it really felt like it, it basically in the trenches of the conservation poverty dilemma. So uh, with the team that I was working with at the time, we thought to ourselves, if we can pull this off here, we can really do it anywhere. Awesome. So you have a background in biology, and I was wondering how do you approach stakeholder engagement in this in this example, in these communities, where do you begin? <laughs> Good question. Right. Um, no, seriously, I, I most certainly was not trained in anything even close to participatory project design, socioeconomics, cacao, international development, any of that. But uh, I did have a first a solid firsthand understanding of what life is like for the villages living inside this reserve. And that was because of the years that I spent there working as a researcher. I was originally focused on um, rainforest regeneration processes as the basis for a, a scientifically designed reforestation plan. And um, so I got to know the communities that were surrounding the, the research station pretty well where we were living. And as a result of that, it always felt pretty easy to create a rapport with them afterwards. Um, with respect to how I got up to speed with the rest of it, I guess I'm just a quick study. <laughs> so, okay. I, so, got, I got the wrong PhD. It's okay, okay. though, because I'm still using it. <laughs> so, but what, what is it? How do, you, how do you bridge that gap, right? You say it's pretty easy to get along, but what is it that you're, you know, in hindsight that you're actually doing? Well, I think um, I think the key is just in talking to them as people and in understanding their plight, which is not it's not a tall ask for me. You know, the the injustices that I witnessed after years of I guess how long did I spend on my PhD research? I must have been there for 8 years or 7 years total. Mm-hmm. And Essentially, what ended up happening was I, I started feeling like I could study the trees until the cows came home and it wasn't going to make a difference in terms of the problem itself. Reforestation started feeling to me like a Band-Aid that we would put on the problem rather than addressing the cause of the problem. I have different thoughts about that on a large scale now, but that's that's a, a different subject. Um, and so I I became friends with quite a few of the community members and started hearing, you know, very specific stories about how their situation was impacting 
their their future potential for their family, their you know their daily struggle to put food on the table, and it, it's interesting because it really is it's a system of very deeply ingrained um, patterns in terms of the way things are set up with respect to the middlemen and the people that are closer to the the actual paved access ways, and you know them with respect to the the people that are actually harvesting the products that are being sold and they there there's serious exploitation going on so i think the the short answer to that question is when you can demonstrate to people that are living in these villages that you really do comprehend what they're going through it it just instantly opens up a communication because they mm-hmm. they feel in many ways that they've never been heard and the history of this particular reserve, without going into great detail, is is uh, very embroiled. It's like the stuff that movies are made of. Years ago, <laughs> there was a colonization initiative in Ecuador, long before anyone was thinking about conservation. Ironically, this was in the early 60s, and um, the the government encouraged people to go into these rainforest areas, these quote-unquote unproductive areas, and work the land. And they made promises, actually, and said, whoever comes into rainforest and clears the forest, whatever you actually deforest, we will give you double that in legal land title. And shortly after those promises were made, there was international attention, on, on especially on this area of the Choco, the coastal forest. And there were a bunch of rapid inventories that took place of plants, of flora and fauna. And then there was tremendous international pressure that this area should be conserved. So the the government of Ecuador essentially did an about-face and literally erased the agency that had made all of the promises for the legal land titles, and the people were told to leave after they had been told to come and to work the land, and which was not an easy thing to do. So essentially what happened at that point was people raised up their machetes and said, go ahead and make us leave. We're not leaving. And this was, I think, three generations ago of farmers. So the area is still colonized. The government kind of recognized, you know, that they couldn't get the people to leave. And since then, what is technically on paper a reserve has had, I think at this point, there are 80-some very small forest villages existing within the borders of that. Wow. Okay. Well, that's... Yeah. Very helpful to have that 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 insight and that historical context. So, how long did it take for you to get this project with the research to a point where you could hand it off to to Jan and his team? What was involved? Um, I think it was about three years in total until we we were able to make the transition. Uh, we basically had a two year funded project from it was funded in primarily by the ITTO, the International Tropical Timber Organization, and that covered the due diligence phase and the pilot implementation phase of the project. And then I think we spent roughly another year off and on working with Original Beans to ensure a smooth transition as we passed the reins to them. Okay, super. So, Jan, when did you get involved with, with this project, and what was the first thing you felt was needed to move the project forward? So our first contact was in 2012 when Amy um, mailed or called, I I don't remember Philip, and in this time I 
already was searching for a new project in, in Esmeralda. So my first field visit was then in 2013 because we, we knew about the importance of the, this area, but we had not really a good connection to some NGO doing really good conservation work there. And why we had chosen this project or why we thought it's so interesting to go there and have a look on it is it is because of this uh, conservation project from Amy, but also because they had a really old grown cacao forest there and really no introduction of modern hybrid cacao. So that's also very important for us that we find uh, small villages, areas where you can get native cacaos as it is the Arriba Nacional in Ecuador, very, very pure. And when I came there the first time, I immediately got a good feeling of a really motivated community. So that is why, why we then started to work there. What I thought that the, the projects uh, need to move forward uh, are two things, and th these two things are basic for all our projects. It's on the one hand the quality of the cacao, and on the other the organic certification. And both was not there when I came there. So for us, quality is very essential because we want to buy very, really good, really high prices. But then we also need to be able to put our products in a very special market where you can earn this price back, you know, where you can really sell high quality, fine flavor chocolate. So we need a high quality of processing of the beans. That was the first point. And the other is the organic certification because our main market is Europe and special Germany. And there we are quite um, successful in the organic supermarkets. So we need organic certification. And these were the two things we were focusing on the beginning of the project. Mm -hmm. And and what is the structure of this community effort now, you know, in terms of governance and various types of forest products besides perhaps cacao? Um, so we, we then started in 2013, but in 2015, a local Ecuadorian company joined the project. That was very, very helpful because they uh, helped us to set up like uh, training courses and somehow complete the central purchasing facility in 2015. The whole project was not so easy because in the moment where we thought, okay, it's, it's, now, it's now really going on, then the central fermentation center were distracted by, by the earthquake in 2016. But nevertheless, we got out a first harvest of Mono Bravo in 2016. And um, since then, we are fermenting and drying the cacao outside of the Machichindu reserve. So we are buying from a group of farmers that is organic certified since 2016. And we were finally able to establish an association in Mono Bravo this year. So now it's officially an association. We started with eight families. This year, we will reach 19 families. And... They are just starting the third harvest period. So we bought first cacao in 2016. We're then able to buy uh, last year and will also be able to buy this year. And as the members of the association is raising, also the uh, 
the forest areas in conservation are raising and also the the cacao production. So we started with very low production of not even 12 tons and this year we forecasted 30 tons. So that's hard for us to absorb these high volumes, but it's it's very necessary for the project that we buy this uh, this cacao because the world market prices or the lo- local market prices is so much lower. Mm-hmm. So we just launched a second product out of this area, uh, a dark chocolate curvature, to be able to buy the this year's harvest. Well, that, yeah, that, that's a pretty big increase, right? Going from 12 tons to... To thirty tons, which is which is pretty phenomenal. I, I realize that perhaps we should just take a step back for a moment and just explain very briefly how cacao becomes chocolate, because I don't know if everybody listening can is I, going to understand that. Thomas, yes. can I yes. can I just interject something real quickly here that I think uh, is important? Absolutely. I just wanted to mention in, in listening to Jan explain all of that. Um, you know, we originally envisioned, little did we know, we thought that we would try and set up, we we actually started off working with three communities, and in the end there was only one left standing. Um, but the, the community of Mono Bravo, our goal was to try and get them to a place of where they would be managing their own business themselves, and they wouldn't be kind of beholden to anyone else. And we realized at the end of this, a three-year project implementation that that was not a realistic goal. It was not anywhere close to that. And I just wanted to mention, I, I think, two important things. One thing is I think that the idea of, of the funding for this being linked directly to private sector rather than dependent on things like, you know, NGOs or foundations and philanthropy, um, I think that that is a really good idea. I do also, however, think that we really lucked out in finding original beans uh, because I, you know, there's quite a bit of potential for corrupt. corruption is the wrong word for it, but for vested interests on behalf of the chocolate company when they're holding the reins to the the producers association that is giving them the product that they need. Um, So I think that, you know, I think that that, that's something worth mentioning is that 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 is, we really got lucky, and but I do believe that original beans, in some sense, is a bit of an anomaly in terms of how wonderful they are with their focus, their equal focus on conservation and the and the the wellness of their producers, as well as maintaining their business afloat. So I just thought that it would be helpful to interject those things for anyone else considering a similar effort. Thank you for doing that, Amy. I really appreciate that. We have to take a short break and we'll be right back. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Is your community on a journey to build consensus or define a vision for the future? Do you want your organization and people to flourish? Are you feeling burnt out or seeking guidance to leave old patterns of thinking and being behind? 
Thomas Rosenberg has international experience in change leadership, consensus building, and organizational transformation. He guides leaders and change makers, their organizations, and communities on their journeys of transformation. For more information and to contact him, visit Regenerate.coach. Our humanity is a thing we take for granted, but it takes many forms, and it requires much of us to fully express it. Listen to On Living, the Trauma and Beauty of Being Human, with host Dr. Leanne Nguyen. This program will explore topics about survival, fulfillment, hope, connection, being fully alive to ourselves and to others. Guests are people whose life experience inspires us to reflect on these questions. Tune into On Living, broadcasting live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Divorce or domestic family issues can take their toll not only on the adults who are party to it, but also to their children. Sometimes separation or divorce are far better solutions than staying around a toxic relationship. Now there's a show that listens and provides solutions. Listen for Reclaiming Your Life with host Don Christensen. In this program, we discuss family crisis issues which can happen to anyone. Divorce with dignity is possible, and working together can achieve wonderful results. Listen Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Envision. To find out more about the program or to leave comments and questions, please visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Envision Regenerative Communities. Now back to this week's show. We're back and I'm here with Amy Rogers, Senior Fellow at the Pinchot Institute for Conservation and Jan Schubert, Conservation Cacao Leader for Original Beans. So Jan, as uh, before the break, I had asked you to, to give a... a very brief summary of how, for those who don't understand, how cacao becomes chocolate. Okay, so very shortly, you have the cacao pots on the on the tree. So the farmers harvest these uh, cacao fruits, um, and inside of these fruits, you have the seeds with the pulp around it. And for high quality, fine flavor cacao, it's very important that you pass these um, beans through a process of fermenting and afterwards of drying. So that's essential for the flavor of the of the chocolate afterwards and that is why small farmers have to be organized because they can only do it all together in bigger amounts afterwards you get these fermented dry cacao beans we ship it to the netherlands store it there make our chocolate then in switzerland and first of all the cacao bean is roasted then you get the shell of the cacao beans you break the bean and you grind it, mix it, in our case, really just with sugar for the dark chocolate, and then it's it's ready. Or for what is more famous, um, with milk chocolate, uh, for milk chocolate with milk powder and sugar and the cacao mass. That's it. Wow. All righty. Well, that's very helpful. Thank you. So I also wanted to, just for you to talk a little bit about how why direct trade is so central to what original beans does and explain how you choose to source your cacao so um as i explained it with the numbers in the first 
part of this uh, interview, fair trade is really not enough. So fair trade is a very, very low premium. And if you want to enable small farmers to make a living of cacao, then you need to pay much more. And for us, it's important that we get our cacao from own projects. So we do not only know the price we pay for the cacao in Europe, but we also know for every project the farm gate level of the price and we can influence that. So we have on the one hand an, an very, an, an higher cacao price and on the other hand we pay premiums and we can, um, yeah, we can directly get involved on the ground. So that's why I'm working in, in South America, my colleague is working in Africa. To, to set up our own projects and our sourcing criteria is quite quite simple. We have a social um, component, so it has to be a really big social impact on the ground. So we are working only with small farmers. Um, the second part is an environmental impact. So we grow our cacao in agroforestry system, make reforestation programs or get it from wild harvest sources. And the other hand is um, the cacao itself. So we are searching for very flavor-rich native cacao varieties and then start projects to preserve them in situ. So the cacao of Mono Bravo, for example, we selected the best trees and now are starting some reforestation with the selected cacao varieties. Thank you. That That is in, it's incredible and it, it brings up lots of... Uh for me, lots of possibilities and just in terms of like how this can be, this can be scaled, which for Amy, this is really my, my next question to you is this is a really intriguing model. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, you feel like there's more opportunity to rely on the private sector than the public sector. So how can this be scaled and are there best practices that people need to take into consideration? Thanks, Thomas. Um, I think that the question of whether or not it can be scaled is a really big one. The best path to that might be in pairing more socially oriented NGOs or even extension officers, some sort of an agency that, that specifically focuses on um, the skills that would be required for livelihood improvements to be implemented with those that focus on the conservation outcomes. In other words, one for the facilitation of livelihood improvements and the other for orchestrating forest conservation. In terms of um, how you can measure success for those things, I think that it can be measured both by environmental outcomes, such as number of hectares of forest conserved or reduction in logging events, or by social outcomes, such as increases in farmer income and product volume, value-adding certifications acquired, et cetera. Okay, great. That, that, that was very succinct. So thank you. The, so Jan, do you, uh, you mentioned you're in, previously that you're, you're working in Africa and, and then elsewhere, or Original Beans, not you personally, but Original Beans is working. So what... Are there variations that you feel are necessary to make this work in other countries? Yes, there are. So we are working at the moment in, in eight countries. Um, a lot of our projects are located in, in South America. 
first of all, you have really to understand the dynamics of each region of the farmers groups you work with and their needs and, and drivers. So what uh, I usually do first is to try at least to build a network in each country of origin of can be international NGOs, local NGOs, also to get governmental organization involved like municipalities. So Original Beans is a very small company and we need really good partners and a strengthened network to make such things like in Mono Bravo happen. So sometimes we start a project more from the cacao side, so it's cacao driven by a special type that we want to have for our chocolate. And uh, then we have really to integrate our conservation goals. And sometimes a project is more conservation driven, like in the part in the in Mono Bravo in Esmeraldas. So my work is then more focused on the on cacao and quality and on these things. So one of our other project is uh, uh, Pura, for example. It's in the north of Peru, where I'm at the moment. Where, and here it's easy to um, rescue an old native cacao because people in Peru are very proud of their natural heritage and thereby it's really easy to establish projects focused on native foods. It can be potatoes, quinoa, in our case it's cacao, um, because you can motivate them to protect and grow an old variety and build a project about that. So in this case, my main work is integrate some conservation goals, training courses on how to protect best the dry forests around there and, and such things. And then there are projects that are totally different. So we started our latest project in Colombia with the Araco people. It's an indigenous tribe in the north in the Sierra Nevada National Park. And these people are deeply committed to conservation, to the forest. For them, it's, it's, it's the most important. So you don't have to um, focus your project a lot on these conservation things. But uh, when we started the project, there was no knowledge about cacao. So then you have really to focus much more on cacao and to get the quality that enable us to, to sell fine flavored chocolate. And in general, I think social media helps a lot to stay in contact with the people on the ground, to keep a very close relationship, even with the people in small villages. Because I can be here in Pura now, but via Facebook or WhatsApp, I can be in touch with our field officer in for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful. So, uh, Jan, is there one lesson you've learned in this process you wish you knew before starting? Um, yes. Yeah, so, from the project in Ecuador, we really learned. So, when we started it, we were really like, okay, that's so cool. It's a, such a small project and we can get the whole cacao harvest exclusive for us. But we really learned that if you get this high level of exclusiveness, then it's a lot of more work to be done there. That also means higher costs. So for us, for the future, it's easier to establish projects in partnership with existing cooperatives or social enterprise than just with a very good conservation project, but without an, a partner on the ground. Mm -hmm. So that is, yeah, I think the most important. Super. So what is next for you in Original Beans? Um, 
Yeah, we are now focusing more on growing our existing projects because, um, yeah, higher volumes, higher impact on the ground. So um, that's why we started not to only sell our chocolate and covertures, but also the beans in Europe to small craft chocolate makers. So um, that's one of the next steps. And for me personally, I will go from Peru in the next weeks to, to Colombia, to the Araco people. We are trying to certify this project organic, which is hard because it's like, yeah, half wild grown and it's in the inside of a national park. So it's a long process, but I think it's it's worth it. And I love to work with these um, nature connected peoples. And then this autumn, we, we will launch a second tribal selection bar. A colleague um, of me is working on that. So so the direct collaboration with the Aracos was the first tribal selection bar in this yeah, September, October. We will get a second one into the shelves. Super. So, Amy, what are you focusing on next? So um, I have just moved back not long ago, about a year ago. After 20 years abroad, I've moved back to the U.S. and I'm based in the Bay Area, Thomas. Um, I find myself becoming more and more interested in the potentials of landscape-scale reforestation in the tropics, and I'm also learning a lot more about blockchain as a means to connect everyday consumers in the developed world with, with people where the battle is actually playing out. Essentially, what I'm trying to do right now is, is to figure out how to best leverage 20 years of on-the-ground experience from this side of the fence, I guess. <laughs> indeed, mm-hmm. indeed. So, uh, Jan, very briefly, where can people follow the work of Original Beans, your, your, your websites, your social media, and where can they find your products? Um, so they can follow us on, on social media and via our webpage, originalbeans.com. And there you can find a very nice tool. It's a tree tracker. So if you buy a bar, you can put your a tree tracker code in there and then see exactly where the tree for this bar is protected or, or um, replanted. Uh, and um, in the United States, our chocolates are viable in some special chocolate shops or via the webpage of Caputo's. Super, super. Well, thank you, Amy and Jan. It's been delightful having you both on the show. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you, Thomas. Thanks very much. You're very welcome. And it, for listeners, if you're enjoying this show, we ask that you consider supporting its ongoing production and development with a one-time or monthly ongoing donation. This show has been gifted for the past year, and we ask you consider giving what you think it's worth. So please go to steadyhq.com forward slash support hyphen envision. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your co-host, Thomas Rosenberg, and this is Envision. Thank you for tuning in this week to Envision. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future shows, visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Envision Regenerative Communities. For more information about today's guests and upcoming shows, please see our show page on voiceamerica.com. Be sure to join us again next Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a terrific week.